Hey, welcome to this week's episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast. Today we're in week two of our new sermon series called The Big Conundrum, in which we're talking about faith and politics. In particular today, we're talking about fear and politics and how uh, fear can tend to uh, motivate us and uh, make us think about politicians and politics and just look at life in a way where we forget about God's role in our life. And really, we forget that God is in control. So if you've ever been afraid of anything, particularly when it comes to politics, uh, I think this message is going to speak to you. So you ready? Let's go. While I was too young to vote in the 2004 election between John Kerry and George W. Bush, I do remember that as a freshman in high school, the only thing I could think of during that election was that the next president, whoever it would be, would have to make it a priority to keep us safe against terrorism. See, I was in seventh grade on September 11, 2001, when members of the Al-Qaeda extremist group hijacked four planes and crashed two of them into the Twin Towers in New York City, another one into the Pentagon, and then a third one um, crashed in a, in a field out in Pennsylvania. And while I was too young to really know what was happening that day, I still vividly remember the fear that I felt for weeks, months, and even years after that. I remember walking home after school that day and constantly looking up to the sky to make sure there weren't any planes. I remember worrying all the time that my brother-in-law, who was an active military member at the time, would get deployed if war broke out. I remember being fixated on the news, trying to make sense of it all. I remember my heart breaking as stories came out of family members who lost a loved one that day. But most of all, I remember the fear that was visible in pretty much everybody that I knew. So when the election between Kerry and Bush was taking place, even though I was too young to vote, all I could think about uh, was that I wanted whoever was elected next to keep us safe from any other terrorist attacks like the one that we had experienced in 2001 because, again, I didn't want to experience that type of fear ever again in my life. Now, what about you? Have you ever had a moment of immense fear? Specifically, have you ever been led to be uh, active politically because of the fear you felt? In other words, do you remember ever going to the polls full of fear, voting for specific candidates simply on the basis that you trusted them to help you get rid of that fear, or, or going to the polls simply to keep someone out of office because you were afraid of their leadership if they did get elected? My guess is that to some extent, all of us have felt that kind of fear. And here's how I know this. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but everywhere we look, um, everywhere we look, fear has become a powerful political weapon that is being used to win elections. Just, just think about how often politicians talk about things like immigration and refugees and climate change and the national debt and terrorism and crime and so many other fear-mongering issues, and their pitch always ends with something like, if you vote me into office, the problem will get solved, right? Or, or maybe even, even better, they, they'll say, if you, vote, um, if you don't vote me into office, the problem is only going to get bigger, 
right? As if they're the only ones that can help us to get rid of our worst fears. Now, Caitlin Scheiss, in her book, The Liturgy of Politics, she says this, Fear is a powerful motivator, whether it be fear of a future cataclysmic event, of the bad guys, the quote-unquote bad guys, or of what society will become. How true is that statement, right? Fear is a, a powerful motivator. Now, to be fair, I don't blame politicians who use this tactic to motivate their constituents. I know that, unfortunately, these tactics work at winning elections. They're, they're great at manipulating people into voting certain ways and getting people elected. It's just disheartening, at least to me it is, that politics has embraced the idea of instilling fear in people in order to gain their trust and even their votes. Now, sadly, this isn't new. I mean, just think about it. During World War II, the Nazi party in Germany terrified people, uh, terrified its people into believing that only a massive war could keep people safe from its enemies. In the 1950s, the U.S. had to deal with the Red Scare, in which the American people were, were uh, scared into believing that there were communists hiding all around our communities, in the classrooms, and doctor's offices, and everywhere, trying to convert people into communists. And even more recently, right, fear has been used as a tactic with issues such as climate change and COVID-19 and election results and so much more. Just listen to this article released in 2016 by The Atlantic. It says, fear is in the air and fear is surging. Americans are more afraid today than they have ever been in a long time. Polls show majorities of Americans worried about being victims of terrorism and crime, numbers that have surged over the past year to highs not seen more than a decade. Every week, the article says, seems to bring a new, large, or even small-scale terrorist attack at home or abroad. Mass shootings form a constant drumbeat. Protests have shut down large cities repeatedly, and some have turned violent. Overall, crime rates may be, uh, may be down, but a sense of disorder is constant. Yeah, it's those last six words that get to me. Those last six words from this article. It says, a sense of disorder is constant. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in this uh, constant sense of disorder and this constant sense of fear. That's a miserable way to live our lives. Which, to be honest with you, it's why I dread election season. The election seasons, they, they just seem to bring up this constant sense of disorder and fear among people. And it's dreadful. It causes division among communities and it makes neighbors seem like enemies and a sense of distrust begins to fill the air. Now, let me throw another interesting fact your way. Even in the Bible, we see leaders use fear to manipulate people into doing certain things. Just let that sink in for a moment. It's not just current politics. It's not just in times of war. It's not just um, when it comes to political issues. It's even in scripture that we see evidence of fear being used to manipulate people into doing certain things. Let me explain. 
In the book of Exodus chapter 3, God appears to this guy named Moses and he says this, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. Now the Israelite cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So basically, the Israelites had been in slavery for a long time. And so God sends Moses to not only free them, but to take them to the promised land, a land that would be full of milk and honey. But, but there's a catch. The land already has residents living in it right? We, we get this list of people, but, but God makes it clear to, to, uh, to Moses that this will not be an issue. So when they leave Egypt, Egypt, they leave knowing that when they get to the promised land, they're going to encounter enemies, but they have been assured by God. They have received this assurance from God that it's going to be okay. Now, the crazy part is that this isn't the first time that God makes this uh, makes it clear that they will inhabit this land or that it's going to be okay when they face these enemies. See, way before this point, way before they were ever slaves in Egypt, way before the Israelite people were even a people, God appeared to this guy named Abraham, also known as Abram, who ends up being the patriarch of the Israelites. And God tells this to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. To your descendants, I give this land from Egypt's uh, river to the great Euphrates, together with the, Kenani the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. See, even here, God is saying that he's going to give this land to the Israelites, a land that is occupied by others. And over and over and over and over again, there is this underlying message that, give, that God gives to the people. Do not fear, because God already knows what lies ahead, and God is going to take care of it. Over and over and over again, God gives them this underlying message. Which makes this next scripture reading, this next scripture reading which is going to come from Numbers, the book of Numbers, that much more interesting. See, the Israelites uh, get all the way, they leave Egypt, and they get all the way to the edge of the promised land. And Moses is told by God to send spies into the promised land to scope out this land before they ever enter into it. And when the spies return, this is the news that they have to say. And I've got to tell you, it's a little bit bewildering. Listen to the scripture from Numbers chapter 13. Says they returned from exploring the land after 40 days. They went directly to Moses, Aaron, and the entire Israelite community in the Paran Desert at Kadesh. They brought back a report to them and to the entire community and showed them the land's fruit. Then they gave the report We entered the land to which you sent us. It's actually full of milk and honey, and this is its fruit. There are, however, powerful people who live in the land. The cities have huge fortifications, and we even saw the descendants of the Anakites there. 
The Amalekites live in the land of the arid southern plain. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and Amorites, they live in the mountains. And the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Now Caleb calmed the people before Moses and said, We must go up and take possession of it, because we are more than able to do it. But the men who went up with him, the other spies, uh, they said, We can't go up against the people because they are stronger than we. And so they started a rumor about, uh, about the land that they had explored, telling the Israelites, the land that we crossed over to explore is a land that devours its residents. All the people we saw in it are huge men. We saw there the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak from the Nephilim. We saw ourselves as grasshoppers. That's how we appeared to them. The entire community raised their voice and the people wept all night. All the Israelites criticized Moses and Aaron. The entire community said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken by force. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to each other, Let's pick a leader and let's go back to Egypt. Look, every time I read through this scripture, it just blows my mind. For starters, they seem to be surprised that this land is, quote unquote, actually full of milk and honey. Did you catch that? I mean, God told them, you're going to go to a land that's full of milk and honey, and yet they're surprised that it's actually full of milk and honey. It's almost as if they never trusted that God was serious when God told them that the land would be full of it. Which makes the next part even less shocking, I guess. See, as they give their report, they begin to raise the level of fear among the people by telling them that the cities have these huge fortifications and that powerful people live in that land. And as they recount of all the people that are in the land, the people become afraid. The Israelites become afraid. And we know this because we're told that, that Caleb, one of the spies, it says he had to calm the people down. Now, we also know this because the other spies decided to start some rumors. The, the, the scripture very clearly says they started some rumors about giants in the promised land, which, which led to the Israelite people saying, let's elect a new leader, a leader who can lead us back to safety. Does that sound familiar? We, we still say that kind of stuff all the time today. Now, let's talk about the narrative that the Israelites created uh, because it's absolutely horrible. I, I, I just get angry every time I read the scripture. For starters, the Israelite people have known all along that they would encounter people, that they would encounter an enemy that, uh, when, when they made it to the promised land, when they, when they arrived to the promised land. This is nothing new for them. At least it shouldn't be anything new for them. In fact, all but one of the peoples who were named uh, in this list of people that they encountered in the, in the promised land, They've been named every time the Israelites are told about the promised land, every time before. So this should not have been shocking news to them, right? I feel like the spies come back and they should have been like, yeah, we knew that already. And yet the, the report is given in such a way that it causes to, uh, people to have fear. Now, even though it wasn't news to them, even though they already knew about it, the, the, they now have fear about proceeding into the land that had been promised to them. So let's talk about the one group of people that is named here for the first time that we've never heard about before, that they've never heard about before. As the spies are giving their report, they say that they encountered the descendants of the Anakites in the promised land. Now, a little later in, in their report, it's in verse 33, they say this, 
We saw there the Nephilim, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. Now, in other words, the one group of people that they encountered in the Promised Land that had never been mentioned before were the Anakites, who were descendants of Anak, who were connected to the Nephilim somehow. So who are the Nephilim? Well, Genesis chapter 6, which is right before the story, story of Noah's Ark, if you've heard that story, it says this, In those days, giants, also known as the Nephilim, uh, some, uh, some translations say Nephilim, some translations say giant, but they lived on the earth and also afterward when divine human beings and human daughters had sexual relations and gave birth to children. Now, scholars disagree about what this word Nephilim means, uh, but most would agree that the word refers to giant or big, strong people. Now, some scholars go so far as to argue that the reason we interpret Nephilim as giants is because, uh, going back to our, our scripture uh, of, of, from Numbers, in the report that the spies give, they started a rumor that the Anakites, the descendants of the Nephilim, were giants, right? In fact, so giants that if you keep reading in verse 33, it says this. It says, we saw ourselves as grasshoppers, and that's how we appeared to them. Now, let me make sure that I'm being clear here. There is no other proof that the Nephilim are giants other than the rumor that is started by the spies to scare people into not going into the promised land, which caused them to panic and, and, and to say to each other that they should just elect a new leader that can take them back to Egypt and protect them from these giants. Now, are you beginning to see how the spies use these fear tactics to get their way? And, and while what I'm about to say is also a speculation, I'm convinced that if the, if the Israelites had gone through with electing a new leader, they would have elected one of the people who caused them uh, to have fear in the first place. See, this idea of fear-mongering politics is nothing new. But it's so harmful because it causes people to forget reality. See, in their fear, they forgot that over and over and over again throughout their entire story, God reminds them to not fear because God already knows what lies ahead and God is going to take care of it. See, these fear tactics caused by the Israelite spies to stray away from the, the promise that God had given them, um, it, it caused them to just like forget what God had told them, that God would be with them and that the land would be theirs. And the sad part is that they even had a proof that this promise would be true. See, early in their journey, in Exodus chapter 17, we're told that the, the, the Amalekites, one of the people who's named uh, uh, as one of the people in the promised land, we're told that the Amalekites, um, they attacked the Israelites. They, they surprised the, the Israelites and they attacked them. And, and, and um, the incredible part is that this was Israel's, the Israelites' first military challenge after they left Egypt. And so they weren't prepared for war. They, they weren't this uh, military superpower. And the Amalekites were pretty strong. I mean, they had, they had experience fighting wars and fighting enemies, right? And yet, despite this being their first, their first military encounter, they defeated the Amalekites with God's help. In fact, they even built an altar in that place to remind them that God gave them a victory over the Amalekites and that God would destroy the Amalekites from everybody's memory. You know, I, I think it's frustrating that despite the fact that God has reminded them of this promise over and over again, and despite the fact that they have already been victorious against these people, even despite the fact that one of the spies tries to convince them that they are more than able to defeat their enemies, uh, 
the spies uh, were, were still able to instill so much fear in their people that every uh, proof and every reminder of God, of God's promise, it just went out the window with this rumor and chaos began to ensue. And suddenly the Israelites started losing trust in God and started doing things their own way. I love what Caitlin says in her book. She says, it's no wonder then that so much scripture is devoted to fighting fear, not merely for the personal inner peace we can gain, but for the sake of the community around us. Friends, in the midst of a political season coming up, in the midst of so many elections and so many fear-mongering message that we're going to hear, remember God's promise. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, God reminds the Israelites, and I would say even reminds us, to not fear, because God already knows what lies ahead, and God is going to take care of it. See, God promises that there will be a day when there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more inequality, no, uh, no more sickness, no more war, or anything bad or harmful. And on that day, everything will be made right. And here's the good news. No fear-mongering political strategy can ever overturn that promise. So as we go to the polls, as we listen to debates, as we have conversations with friends about who to vote and how to vote, let us put fear aside. Let us avoid allowing people to uh, fill us with fear. And instead, may we trust and know that God already knows what lies ahead and God is going to take care of it. Friends, may we uh, live with that promise in our hearts. May we trust it with everything we have. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Mid-City Church Sermon Cast. If you'd like to dive deeper, visit midcity.church slash sermoncast to find a home sheet that goes along with this message. On the home sheet, you'll find scriptures, questions to wrestle with, and a challenge that goes along with this sermon cast. I want to invite you to support our ministry here at Mid-City Church by giving today. To give, text the word GIVE, G-I-V-E, to the phone number 225-307-0662. Thanks and see you next week.